for our reading scripture uh, this afternoon we we turn to Daniel the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2 Daniel chapter 2 And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If ye will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof ye shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill but if ye show the dream and the interpretation thereof ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor therefore show me the dream and the interpretation thereof they answered again and said let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation of it King answered and said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time, because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such things at any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 
Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth in him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might and has made, me know, made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste, and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captains of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen, and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dreams and thy visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter, and he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king. And that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. And now what follows is really the text for the sermon. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was ex excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The, this image had was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest, till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were iron, of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, 
and another kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with the miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. We read that far in God's holy word. This Word of God, beloved people of God, records a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, well-known man even in secular history, the great king identified with the great kingdom of Babylon. It encourages dream, the interpretation of that dream by the prophet of the Lord Daniel, and then the reward of him and his three friends from God. And it's evident from the passage that this is no mere dream, but a dream that we would call a nightmare. And that's evident from the effect that the dream had upon him in the first place. We read that his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. Then there's the response. Notice the response. Immediately upon having the dream, and very doubtful then that it really had gone from him. He knew what the dream was. He was withholding that information so that he could be positive that those who interpreted it were speaking the truth. Nevertheless, notice how he assembles almost as it were a war cabinet. He wants answers and immediately. Then look at the impossible demand he places on them. And then even knowing it's really an impossible demand, look at the haste and the fury 
with which he is ready to execute all these, the wisest men in all of the kingdom. The reason, of course, for his fear, the fear of this great king, is really threefold. First of all, there is the visage of the image itself. We read that it was great, that is massive, it was tall. It rose up to the heavens. It was excellent in brightness, glory. It was terrible, that is, frightening. And it stood before him, that is, it loomed over him. It was threatening, as it were, oppressive. Then, secondly, look at this as a reason for fear. He knew that this had personal significance, likely even the image itself looked like him. He recognized himself somewhat in that image. And then thirdly, he sees that this image, this image that has something to do with him, is smashed to pieces by an inhuman means, a stone. And a stone now that grows. And it smashes to pieces. This, it, so he is afraid. It's a nightmare that he has that night from God. But this is not told to us so that we might see what happened to some secular and ungodly king, but for our comfort, this is the word of God. What was a nightmare for the king is great comfort for the people of God. God knows the world we live in. We, we live in the world of this image. We live with that great image looming frighteningly and gloriously over us. But the image is smashed to pieces. Of course, what this dream and its interpretation is for us is the great word that God is sovereign over all. He is king of kings and lord over lords, even over the mightiest kings and lords. The comfort of the dream is that our God is king and lord both over the spiritual realm so that he can send dreams and reveal them to others and over the physical realms. He's the one who sets up these kings, which is why he can send dreams about them. And then, of course, the comfort of all that is God's grace, because we have here also then the kingdom of God as represented by that stone cut out without hands, without any appearance of man. And that is the comfort of the passage. So. Consider with me Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, and we're going to look at, in the first place, what that nightmare represents, which is the development of man's kingdom. The development of man's kingdom. In the second place, what's revealed in this dream is the conquest of God's kingdom. The conquest of it. And then thirdly, another point that's very much highlighted in the passage is the certainty that this will 
come to pass. So we first of all want to talk about the rise or development of man's kingdom, which is a feature here. Even though the king sees an image, an image that's already carved and made out of various different metals and things, it's clear that it's representing the development of something successively over time. Even Nebuchadnezzar is told that he represents one part of the image and then the one part is replaced by another part. It's talking there about the development, the erection of this image, only it happens in reverse order as we might expect. Normally images are built from the base up. This one is described from the head down. What's going on? Well, first of all, we need to look again at the overall appearance of the image. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. One gets the impression he saw an image that no man really could ever make. Just an unusually large image. It's, it's splendid. It's glorious. It's amazing. It's the kind of image that if you looked at, you would just look at it in awe. It's threatening. There's something about that image, as glorious as it is, that's, that's troubling. This, this is an amazing image. And then it's made in five distinct parts strange all by itself, made of different metals, gold and then silver and then brass and then iron and then clay mixed in with the iron. Now, only the head is positively identified. We need no speculation here. Uh, Daniel tells us, as it's revealed to him from the Lord very clearly, that the head of gold, this massive, beautiful head of gold that's at the very top, represents none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself as the greatest king of all earthly kings. That's what's meant when it says, Thou art that head, thou king of kings and lord of lords. Twice at the top. That's why it's made out of gold. And what we must understand is it represents, of course, not simply the king himself, but his kingdom. One looks at scripture, one will often see that kings cannot be separated from their kingdoms. What happens to the king happens to the kingdom and vice versa. You can hardly distinguish them and that's the idea here. When the Lord says that the head is Nebuchadnezzar, that's the Lord also saying and that's the kingdom of Babylon. What also is being described here, very obviously, is that this king rules over what may easily be considered a worldwide kingdom. For the Lord, through the prophet describing this statute and the statute with its head of gold, uh, says that this is a king and a kingdom who rules wherever the children of men dwell. And even the beasts of the field and the fowl of the air come under the influence of that image. In other words, it's describing the power and the influence of the king and his kingdom in the world. The meaning is that he is able by power 
and by influence to affect all men and even the beasts in his realm. He is able to do with them as he pleases as a king. He is able to use those as slaves, to use some for war, to use some as bakers, to use some simply to mine metals, to destroy as he did with the wise men. He just didn't matter who they were. He decrees that they be killed and they will be killed. And the overall appearance represents the fact that both the king and his kingdom possess an awesome, almost terrible, fearful kind of power. It's the kind of power that when a man wields it, other men stop and they take note, but they also tremble like you can imagine the people of his kingdom trembled when they heard that simply with one word, even after asking the impossible of these men, the biggest or the brightest and the most important men in the realm would all be executed. Now, the king learns from Daniel that after King Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon will come four other kingdoms. And it's clear that these four other kingdoms replace the kingdom before them. That is, it's clear that they replace the previous kingdom by conquest, by being in a certain sense greater. Even though in a certain sense they're lesser, and the lesser part of it is brought out by the metals, the metals, as they go down the statue, are successively less glorious. But as you go down to the less glorious metals, they are also stronger. That is, they have better utility, maybe less glorious. And that has to do with how they conquest or conquer the previous kingdom. Now, they're not identified positively, but it's obvious that they have all the features of the first. So what is said about the first applies to all the others except that they are less glorious. There's something about the beauty of them that diminishes. But in all other respects, they're the same. They also wield tremendous power over the nations and over the beasts of the field. So there's an increase in dominion. There's an increase in power. There's an increase in authority, increase in influence, but there's a certain decrease in value and glory. And then finally, even you get down to the feet. They're mixed with that very strong iron, but clay, which is the weakest of all the elements that are being used. Now, there's universal agreement. There's almost no disagreement among all the orthodox theologians about what the first three represent. And that's B, 
because there's going to be other dreams and there's going to be other things interpreted in this very book that run along the same lines and there they are identified. So we may say uh, very safely of course that the silver is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. That's the kingdom we know for a fact would replace the kingdom of Babylon. There's a diminishing in the value and the glory of that kingdom because it's not really one king that rules. It's a rule divided by Darius and, and Xerxes and, and Cyrus. They all wield uh, a great power in that kingdom, which in turn is replaced by the brass kingdom, which we know is the kingdom of Greek and Macedonia, the great kingdom of Philip and Alexander the Great and the many city-states of Greece and Macedonia that are united for a time. And then the next kingdom made out of iron, the one which is the strongest of them all, is the kingdom of Rome, of Rome, which conquers the world by brute force, has even the greatest influence over the culture, over the times, over the races, so that its influence even stretches into today. When it comes to the last one, however, the one made out of iron and clay, there is much disagreement. Many make the mistake, and most make the mistake when there's disagreement, because they try to identify that with a single kingdom. The thinking is, of course, that if there's one king and kingdom represented by the previous four, the last one also has to be. So it's made the rule of Italy or the rule of Germany or the influence of the United States even is, is done. But the fact is the text tells it itself that that can't be because it uses the plural when describing this clay and iron mixture. It speaks about kings, kings. The fact of the matter is that this is speaking about the reality that we know to be true in the New Testament period, the period following Rome, that although there have been a few great kingdoms for a time, one thinks, for example, of the world wars and the influence that Germany had over the world with its allies for a time, the fact of the matter is that it represents all the great kingdoms and kings and republics even that have existed since the time of Rome. And the idea is that they, like the previous kingdoms, have all the best features of Rome. And in fact, even have a wider influence over the people and over customs and over laws and over nationalities and economies and learning and we see that even in our own day, how more and more, even though there's many nations ruling over many parts of the world, there's a, there's a vast influence over the entire world that they have and a, a certain commonality to them. 
but they have one fatal weakness that's pointed out, which is that the power and the glory and the influence that they gain is entirely dependent upon the miry clay of man. That's the fatal flaw. They're not so much dependent on a single king anymore, but because there's many kings and many kingdoms, there's more and more dependence upon man to gain influence and power and authority over culture and peoples, and that is the clay. That's the fatal flaw. Now there's a specific significance. What I just pointed out is really the general interpretation, uh, an interpretation which is quite easy to see um, when one looks and compares scripture with scripture and especially in light of the fact that we, we have a historical record that shows this is exactly what happens and it lines right up with other portions of the book of Daniel that are explained in exactly these same terms same nations, same people involved. But there's another part that needs to be noted, a certain specific significance, which is even though you have these five parts, there's one statue here. There's, there's one image. There's one man that's being represented by these obviously five different kingdoms. What's going on there? And the answer is that it's pointing out that although there's various kings and kingdoms involved, various manifestations, especially in the last one made out of iron and clay, all kinds of different iron and clay, the fact of the matter, they all together represent one kingdom of man. It's an image of man, and therefore it represents the kingdom of man. And the idea is that from the perspective of God, this perspective of Christ, the perspective therefore of the church, it doesn't matter how you look at world history and the various kingdoms that have come and gone, there's really only one kingdom of man, ever. They're united. They're united in the first place in the fact that they all have ungodly, wicked men who rule over them. They are kingdoms that are not only over sinful, wicked men, but they are ruled by sinful, wicked men. So that this image represents the united desires and the united influence, the united sin, the united desire, for example, of man to overcome the curse of God upon man. They represent the desire of man to exalt himself, to lift himself up over this world, to control this world and govern it for himself and his own benefit. And therefore, that means in the second place, they rep, the image represents the united fact that all these kings and kingdoms are opposed to God. They are fundamentally opposed to God. They are united in their hatred of God, their desire to overthrow God, united in their sin against God. 
their despising of God's law and God's rule, their gnashing of teeth at God's influence over them or frustration of their plans, and that means in the second, third place then, that they represent man's united hatred of God's Christ. It is interesting how in the scriptures, the scriptures reveal in places, for example, like Romans 1, that there's a thing called general revelation where all men can see the exceeding power of God, his wisdom, can see even his righteousness so that they are all without excuse. And then there's other passages that show they also have a sense of God's Christ, that God is represented in this world, that God himself is represented by someone whom they despise. That's Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? What's, there's rage, there's hatred. What's it against? And the answer of the psalm is against God's Christ, which the apostles show comes to its fruition, comes to its full development when the nations actually all get together. Not just the Jews, but Rome, the peoples of the world come together to crucify the Christ. This image represents that. But there's even more. We must look at a passage like this in connection with other passages in Daniel and even clearer revelation in the New Testament and we see that it actually represents the developments of the kingdom of man, which itself will be united under one ruler. Even though there are in the feet of clay many kings and kingdoms, there will be, in fact, at some point, one king who rules literally over the whole world. Who, like the image, is the one who brings man to his full development, who brings in the kingdom of man in its full development of culture and arts and sciences and the knowledge and understanding and wisdom of men, who brings the power of man that God has given to man to its fullest expression, who also brings out the full development of man's hatred against God and against God's Christ and that we know especially will come to fruition by the rage that is exerted against the body of Christ in the world. And the book of Revelation identifies that as the kingdom of the Antichrist. One man opposed to Christ, yet one who represents himself as the Christ, one who says, man, I am your savior. I am the one who will deliver you from all these curses and troubles that you find in the world. I will do that as your representative and king who will come to power by force, by conquering and there will be the fullest development of man's hatred against God. That's what's being represented here. 
But realize, too, that that is also when the fatal flaw becomes most evident. If the fatal flaw is that the strength of Rome in many parts is united and mingled with man and the fatal flaw of man, which is that he is a sinner under the curse of God, then that means that this image represents the fullest development of that, even though there is a man who will combine, who will unite all the kingdoms under himself and have the widest, greatest influence over all the world, all of its culture, all of its economy, and over even the church. It comes about by the fullest development of man's hatred and sin against God, which means it can't last very long. Here's where, even though you look at the development of man's kingdom, you can't help but see, even before you consider the great stone, that its destruction is imminent. It's written, as it were, in the heavens. We all know about what happens to Nebuchadnezzar and even the kingdom of Persia from what we read in the book of Daniel. Not long after Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, his son, it's actually his grandson, and he's going to lose the kingdom in one night. And God says, why? And it's the same reason why he took Nebuchadnezzar off the throne for seven seasons and made him like a beast. It's because he lifted himself up and said, look at this great Babylon that I built. He took the honor and the glory to himself. And God says, I'm not going to allow that to happen. Now imagine a kingdom where man brings that to its fullest expression, literally by standing up and saying, I am God. I am God. I'm just the greatest king. I'm, I'm God. Worship me as God. So it will come to an end. And that brings us to our second point, which is the conquest of God's kingdom, which is represented by that image of a stone. A stone that's cut out without hands. Cut out, we read, out of a mountain. And it is indicated as rolling down that mountain smashing into that image and then itself growing into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And it's interesting. Even when you consult others whose views of eschatology and views of scripture differ very greatly from that of the Reformed or our creeds, you will find almost universal agreement of what that stone represents. It's that obvious, it's that plain, which is it must represent the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. That's what being represented. Now, where you can get into a quagmire, where you can get stuck is trying to explain from what we know historically, well, when's the image smashed? When, when and how does that happen? And one has to be careful there. And if you look at the passage very carefully, you will notice that the Lord basically takes us through three stages. He wants us to look at this development of his kingdom in Jesus Christ, not from the view of the exact moment that it smashes into the image and destroys it, but from three distinct stages. First of all, there's 
the formation of this stone without hands. And then there's the fact that it's a stone. A stone. That's partly what helps us understand it's Christ. How often is Christ represented in Scripture as a stone? Our call to worship this evening deliberately was the stone that the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. A stone, an earthly thing, a physical thing, a thing that comes out of this world. It doesn't fall out of heaven. It's a stone. But it's cut without hands. It's formed. It's fashion. What's going on here? And the answer is it represents the sovereignty of God bringing to pass the Christ, bringing him into this world. It represents the sovereignty, the sovereign rule of God bringing about the incarnation, the ministry, and the death of Jesus Christ. It's worth noting that all of that occurs during the time leading up to the portion of the image to the iron and clay mixture. Who's in power when Christ is crucified? The answer is the kingdom of Rome. It's made without hands. Who brings about the Christ? And how is it brought about? Was it an accident? The answer is no. Oh no. He, he's going to be born of the Virgin Mary. And what you have to see, Nebuchadnezzar, what you have to see, people of God, is that from the moment God has created this world, he is bringing about the Christ. He is in sovereign control over Adam and the line of Adam all the way through Noah, through Abraham bringing about David and then a specific son of David or mother of David so that he comes to pass at this exact moment in time when Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea and Rome is in control so that he's crucified on a cross, not hung that's what's represented by this stone cut out hands. And of course, there's no other great or manifestation or revelation of this work of God without hands, which, remember, is without man's hands. It, it's completely done without any man, not ungodly man, not saved man, not regenerated man, not even Mary from whom Jesus comes. This is by God's hands without human hands and one looks at the incarnation and you you see it this is god's work and god's work alone but the point is even when you look at his death and we know this but this this bringing it to pass the death is not loss it's not a con it's not a conquering of the kingdom of man it's it's not Rome that has the victory or the false church of the Pharisees. No, no, it's God. God is sovereign over all of that crucifixion. And here's another feature too. There's no weakness in this rock. There's no miry clay in this rock. It's not only cut out without man's hands, but there's no clay in it. And the idea is that this is a kingdom that's established not only by God, but on God's own righteousness. There's no sin, there's no flaw in that kingdom. Now it's a stone, 
It's one of those things that man is not going to ooh and ah over. It doesn't shimmer like gold, and it doesn't have the utility, seemingly, of an iron. But it is God's way. It is God's king and God's kingdom. But there's a second stage, and that represents the rise and development of the kingdom of God as through Christ, with God's Christ, after his death. That which is represented by his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and his return on Pentecost. That's what occurs during the final development of the image as represented by those feet of clay and iron. And here the emphasis is upon the coming. The stone has been cut. It's been cut out of the mountain. It's been formed and fashioned. And now it starts to come. It is barreling, as it were, toward that image. <clears throat> From a certain viewpoint, one can say the image is toast. It's done for. Which is how we look at the cross. We say principally the devil was defeated. He's done for right then and there. And it's the idea, too, of we say Christ is coming. We don't mean that he's hidden and not doing anything. He's twiddling his thumbs, waiting to actually appear. But he's coming. He's coming now. He's coming, in fact, in all the events that are occurring. He's coming through the formation of this image. He's coming through his rule over man. He is the one that's actually ruling over all these kings and kingdoms, but he's also coming in the preaching of the Holy Gospel. The preaching of the Holy Gospel which addresses the miry clay of man, which condemns the miry clay of man. And the point is, you may see an image and you may see great power and glory and fear in that image, but one must see the stone, must see the stone barreling, coming, the word of God to the church. Have faith. Look up. Realize that Christ is in heaven and he is ruling and he is coming and you see him in the signs. And then there's the last and final stage, of course, which is the smashing of this kingdom, which we may say is the appearance of Christ in his last coming, in his return, which Revelation indicates comes in order to destroy the great kingdom of man that has been erected by the Antichrist. Such is the threat, such is the influence, such is the power of the kingdom of Antichrist. Do not underestimate it. Scripture represents that power, that influence, that sin as so great, the question will be asked, will there be, is there faith on the earth? Part of the reason for the question will be, wherever one looks, you won't even find a church. The witness of the church is dead. The church has been persecuted as to its institution out of existence. It seems as if there is no hope. All is lost. The people of God can only gather in secret. It's that bad. So much so that the scriptures say, if it weren't for the fact that God's people were elect, they would be deceived. 
they would join the crowds worshiping the beast, worshiping the image, joining in and saying, I had it wrong all along. It's man who is the Christ. It's man who is our Savior. This is what God was talking about in the Bible. But that's not going to happen. Christ is going to come and destroy, notice, the whole image. This is really when everything that man has done, everything throughout all of history, all of his crowning achievements, all of his culture, all of his arts, all the things that man holds dear, all the things that man worships and pays great amounts of dollars to watch and to cheer and to achieve and to build, all of it, all of it, everything that is in those kingdoms, everything that has been in those kingdoms, all the paintings, all the sculptures, all the learning, all the colleges and universities, all of it is ground to powder when Christ comes. When he comes, there is no place whatsoever for anyone who belongs to the kingdom of man. Only the kingdom of Christ exists after that. It is a mountain. It grows and it grows and it grows. And we know, of course, the kingdom has been growing since the beginning of time, since the very first kingdom ever appeared. God has been storing them up in heaven. But now we get to see them from a different perspective. A great mountain. Notice again, it's still not even an image of man. That's a striking feature about this dream. That even though Christ is a man, and must be a man, must be a perfect man, this kingdom of God is always represented as the kingdom of this earth. It's in this earth. It comes out of this earth. It grows into a mountain on the earth. Now, we know Christ comes from heaven. We know God's people go to heaven. They're heavenly creatures. And they're going to return, though, with Christ. Showing that the kingdom of God that conquers the nations of this world is Christ claiming the universe for himself. He always was king. But now he has evicted sin and the devil and justly judged all. And he takes the universe and he makes it new, like unto himself. That's all that's being represented here. And now, third feature I want to bring to your attention is how, in the passage, the emphasis that this is going to occur is brought out brought out so that even the king doesn't disagree. Even the king doesn't turn to Daniel and say, you know what you're talking about. This is repeated over and over again. King, you're getting to see what shall come to pass in the latter days. You are given to see what shall come to pass hereafter. Over and over. Well, what is that? Well, it's God comforting his people, number one. No doubt it terrorized Nebuchadnezzar. It would be a terror to all the ungodly and the kings. They 
still in their unbelief, do what they do. But this is God's comfort to us saying, I'm in charge here. God is saying, look, I'm the one who gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. I'm the one who disturbed him with fear. I'm the one that brings Daniel, who was not, for some reason, called in at first, was he? But there he is. Ariok may have said, I found him, but no, God brought him to Nebuchadnezzar. It's God who gives Daniel the interpretation and tells the dream. It's God who even brings Daniel to influence in Babylon's kingdom. It's God who has brought to pass every single... We need to dwell on these things, people. When we read our history, our secular history, do you, do you realize the perspective that we have? We can read history, we can read about the development of the kingdom of Persia, which is, by the way, fascinating. Read about Cyrus and Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and, and look at the battles that they had with Greece and its formation, about the Battle of Marathon and Thermopylae and all, all those. Read them and watch Alexander as he blazes across the world and conquers it in just a few years. The greatest nations on earth, Egypt and Syria and Assyria and the Persians, he just wipes them out and then he's gone in a flash and then Rome comes. And, and you have to look and say, that's Christ, that's God's kingdom. Man thinks he's erecting an image and all that, but God has already, God, God said hundreds of years before it happened exactly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. Why so? Well, because we have to see the image still is there, rising to the heavens with its influence over the whole world. This is how you have to interpret what's going on in your own land. In the world of politics and the economy and the arts and sports, and when you look at it all, you, you, you must, people of God, see there's a kingdom being built. It's being built by man. Man will build this kingdom. Now, it has a fatal flaw, but he will build it. It will have power and influence like you cannot imagine. It will be a kingdom of man. It will not be a place for you. There will be no place for you in this kingdom, not, no place for Christ and his church. But then you, you, you have to see that, that stone when that comes to pass, that, that stone that's just a split second from smashing that, that statue that's being built, has been being built since the beginning of time by man against God, about to be ground to powder. And then what? We, we live and reign with Christ in his kingdom. Now, there, there's no emphasis upon the church here as such. This is not one of the main features, but we, we have to realize that's what it's talking about when you have this kingdom and it grows. This, this is the king, however, who does what no other king does. When he, you see, is brought to power, his members aren't apart from him, separate from him, that they're part of him. They are his body. He is their head. Where he goes, they go. What happens to him happens to them. And so it's pictured as a mountain. You think of Mount 
Zion started in Jerusalem and God says it's well the meek who shall inherit the earth that's the the gospel a, a terrifying nightmare that came to perhaps one of the greatest kings that ever lived but a king who because again because God is sovereign had to admit that and it doesn't matter what we're going to see in the next five or ten or twenty years it really doesn't matter take note be in awe of what really man is doing and from a certain viewpoint but recognize it for what it is it's not your kingdom it's not Christ's kingdom it's what is about to be destroyed by him amen let us pray O Lord our God and Father in heaven we thank thee for our Lord Jesus Christ and may we put our trust our entire trust and hope in him it may seem to be not much, just a rock, a, a little stone, um, something that men would reject and throw away compared especially to what man is building and erecting. But we are thankful for thy word, which by faith we may receive. Help us, O Lord, to receive it and help us in our unbelief. And we pray as the saints have always prayed, come, Lord Jesus, please.